Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 60. Today on the show, I have Matt Van Dyke of the University of Denver and Max Schmarzo of Strong by Science. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and as fits with the trend of this uh, podcast where we talk about athletic speed and specifically today power development uh had a chance to read a great book recently that was passed to me uh by matt van dyke which is called applied principles of optimal power development so that was authored by matt as well as max schmarzo of strong by science so wanted to talk to these guys uh the book was excellent by the way uh went into a lot of details on when we think power, we we often think like the Olympic lifts or plyometrics or, you know, something along those lines, something that's moving a lot of force in a little window. But when it comes to actually developing that power in practice, uh, the book takes a deep dive into a lot of the parameters, uh, training parameters that are really valuable and stuff that uh, you heard talked about maybe here and there, but uh, do, uh, it really gives a great uh, argument and definitive practice on things like explosive isometrics and potentiation, the use of cluster sets, uh, ideas on training velocity and more. It's a real concise book, great read. And I wanted to get into some of those concepts in the book and maybe maybe a little bit more uh, with Matt and Max. So uh, just quick backgrounds on these guys. Uh, Matt's been on Van Dyke. He's been on the show before, episode 22. He's also contributed to Just Fly Sports through his uh, great article on auto-regulated in-season training. He is doing great work, integrative work at the University of, De- of Denver, one of the smartest young strength coaches in the industry. Uh, Max Schmarzo is the owner of strongbyscience.net. He's an active contributor to the field uh, through systems like the Force Velocity Profile Builder. Uh, he also makes regular science back contributions to the often muddy world of social media although max hasn't trained a lot of athletes as he readily admits he definitely knows his stuff and integrates himself with some of the best minds in the field and i think he's a very valuable contribution uh from just his knowledge background to this show and what we're trying to get at there's just so many ways to uh and attitudes with getting uh, the development of power especially with uh, all the tools we have we have uh, plyometrics we have olympic lifts we have velocity based training and maximal bar speeds uh, how do we put these things together? How do we integrate it in a big group of like 40, 50 athletes or even a little group? What are what are some components we want to look at? One of my own, uh, you're, you're probably going to hear me bring this up a lot just because it's like a been a muse of mine recently. Uh, I mean, I've heard this stuff over my whole career as a coach and even athlete, but isometrics, uh, utilizing those in power. So today we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some range of motion talk for the development of power specific versus general, which is really cool and very important, as well as how do you go throughout the training year uh, in strength versus power? Uh, when are you using your your French contrast sets throughout the year? How do you modulate those? We're going to talk max intent uh, and a lot more. So this is a great episode, really smart episode with two young, bright strength coaches in Matt Van Dyke and Max Marzo. Let's get on to the show. Matt, Max, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today, guys. Thanks for having us, Joel. Thank you. Much appreciated. 
Yeah, so really excited to kind of talk on a common topic, but important nonetheless, and I think one that people can skip over a lot of the great uh, bodies of knowledge out there, and that's uh, power, building power, uh, strength, power, speed. Well, I guess power being the middle of those two, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so just kind of get first into general philosophies. So potentiation in the weight room. Um, how much of what you guys are doing would you say is is uh, building strength uh, versus power and how does potentiation play into all this? Well, I think first of all, I, I think it's important to understand, uh, that the strength is definitely going to lay the foundation, uh, for that power work. If we're looking at, um, power is equivalent to force times velocity. We're going to make sure that that force is as upregulated as possible within our training means, right? So that's going to give us the foundation that we need. And as that force improves, if we're looking at that force velocity curve being linear, you're trying to shift that up throughout the entire course of the year. And then as you get into more of your peaking times, I would say, then you're going to transfer further down. But I, I think the biggest thing is just going to be that that maximal intent at all times. And then you can optimize that power production within that load range that you're working at at all times as long as your athletes have that. Yeah, I think an important thing, Matt, you brought up was the idea of having a base. Um, and we've talked about a couple of times about how important it is to develop power, but we often overlook what actually sets the base for power. Um, whether it's a specific structural hypertrophy you want to have occur um, in the target muscle groups, right? We need to have those to potentiate that actual um, muscle itself, its ability to produce power. So building the force base through non-specific exercises and then through specific exercise, developing power through critical motor patterns, such as like a speed squat or hand clean, whatever your, I guess, uh, choice is. But having that specific muscular base prior to um, implementing those specific power development exercises is, I mean, necessary, but it's also going to also help develop the power itself. With the nervous system, just controlling every aspect that we're doing even and, and it kind of goes back to the maximal intent to how we can use potentiation uh it, de it depends on the level of your athlete but with some of mine especially like um some of my lesser trained athletes i'll utilize some of the the max iso pulls or something like that even in their low positions just to help with strength so it's not only going to ramp up that nervous system prior to going into train that way we can ensure that that intent is applied to every single repetition, regardless of the loading scheme. Uh, but it's also like if you're thinking that sticking point for that athlete to assist with that lift that you're trying to improve that day, uh, I think the, the some of the isometric stuff can be huge uh, for aiding in that, and that's only going to help your strength. And, and, and thinking about strength itself, like through a full repetition, you're only at your maximal intensity at that one point within that lift if you're doing a one rm like if you're doing a a squat you're only at your 100 percent at the at the bottom or whatever your sticking point is and then as you progress further up in your squat you're going to see a less and less percentage of intensity experienced in that lift so i think those are a huge assistance not only in controlling nervous system getting your athletes ready to go at the highest levels but it's even it can aid in your strength work so i i think it's kind of a, a a double-sided tool that can be implemented with a pretty high uh, success rate. Yeah, that isometric portion you brought up is critical because during ballistic movements, it's that initial concentric contraction basically right after the transition phase between eccentric, isometric, and that initial concentric burst basically acts as a gun and a bullet shooting you upward. So the ability to rapidly produce force over that immediate range of motion is critical, which is why having proper is isometric strength um, over that what's called a critical joint angle, which would be the transition joint angle, is really going to aid in developing the ballistic power. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I want to, uh, that's awesome about the isometrics and kind of like, and I've I've found, uh, and, and like I've read kind of in you guys' book and then had experience over the years, and even uh, with that a great article that just came out by Alex Natera on, um, that, that I just put out, uh, the specific joint angle isometrics are, are where it's at in many, many uh, situations. And I think a lot of coaches don't consider it because we're just so caught up in, you know, the standard powerlifting point A to point B. 
Uh, and I'd like to get into isometrics a little more. I did have an, a follow-up with the potentiation idea, and that's, um, I think, the, the, the traditional, like you guys said, you know, build that base of strength, and then you can move, in, move into power as you go along. But at what point, I mean, at what point in the year are you starting to get that idea of potentiation? I mean, because I've, I've seen, uh, like, even day one, I think, uh, like, triphasic training for football or, you know, running French contrast longer in the year for longer cycles uh what are the advantages or disadvantages of doing like in, in you guys mind of of and, and there's so many ways to skin a cat right i mean you can you can get yeah. your strength going first and then run into french contrast later you can run potentiation longer you can run it from day one uh what's uh what are some thoughts there on on how to manage that um i i think it's really important uh and we've kind of talked about this lately more, but it's just like having concepts that you can place, like rely on as far as your training, like understand what your goals are, like the primary goal of your training and making sure that what you're implementing is, is going to give you that adaptation, whatever it is. Uh, but as far as I've used it, I've used it in a, in the potentiation piece in a, in a bunch of different ways. Like with my lower level athletes, like, like for volleyball, this is an example that we've used. What I did is I started them in that low position, like we were talking about, get them that isometric strength in that bottom position so they can start to utilize that. And that's only going to aid them through our strength training. And then obviously we're doing triphasic. So as they get into their quote unquote power phase, the loading starts to drop. And then we'll mix in a little bit of that speed work as they peak. Um, but we'll utilize, we'll change the joint angles that they're using though. So during our strength phase, we'll start in that low, like this is our chance to uh, improve overall strength, ramp up their nervous system, but it's also that sticking point that we're trying to work through versus as we get closer and closer to season, then we're going to look at that critical joint angle that you're talking about because at, in the stretch shortening cycle as they, and and we're huge, and I know you be in track, I'm sure it's it's similar with your jumpers, but teaching them to attack the ground and have that pre-loading so they're almost already in an isometric state and then if they can strike the ground loaded and they have that isometric strength at that joint angle, then they're going to immediately, they're going to give more stretch to that tendon um, and then more free elastic energy on their way out. So I think it just kind of depends on your time of year, but, but making sure that you're overall understanding the concepts of what you're trying to apply. Like for us, it's more of a general to specific. And I would, I mean, I'm sure everybody is like that at this point. But it's, it's how are you attacking that that's going to be the most beneficial for your athletes. Or we've even gone, um, like we had um, some coaches say, okay, we want these girls to be stronger in these specific positions. And we went back and I we kind of messed around. It's, it's an interesting move, but we actually turned the girls laterally in the platform and did a lateral lunge pin pull. So it's like when they're doing their lateral lunge to go get a ball, can they be strong and drive themselves back out of that position in whatever direction that they want? Or you can mix in, I mean, the agility work, like, like you've seen that, um, like the six reps of like the ATP creatine phosphate speed work, we can use that as potentiation too. Um, so that, I mean, there's a ton of different methods that you can go about whether you want to start at the isometric, make sure they have that positioning that to aid with the lift, or you can do that quote unquote neural prep potentiation through high speed movements as well because that's going to ramp that up as well yeah i think something that matt brought this is not a whole bunch off topic but not necessarily right in line with what he said um was making sure you keep track of the nervous system and some of the movement patterns and one of the things him and i actually had a text message discussion about yesterday because talking about things we wish we added into our book um was uh the ability to make sure you maintain high intent during critical movements so primary movements whatever your terminology is for it um so let's say you're doing the squat for example there's no reason to be doing the squat at a point where it's so fatiguing that it's disrupting the motor pattern and you're not putting the kind of intent you want to have into it um, the ability to develop a strength base might be best served doing non-specific motor pattern exercises that aren't going to have um i guess conflicting adaptations with the primary motor pattern that you're developing. So more times than not, because in the weight room we're somewhat limited, we use the squat as more or less a specific movement pattern. Right? If we want to jump higher, typically we change the velocity of the squat, but nonetheless it is the squat itself, um, which means the squat should always be done with maximal intent. But if I want to hypertrophy, let's say my quads or my 
you know, posterior chain, whatever it is, doing high, high volume squats at sub-maximal speeds is then going to be conflicting with that motor pattern I'm developing. And at the same time, how am I ensuring I'm even targeting those specific muscles? So you get this weird balance between, am I disrupting my motor pattern? Am I even getting what I want out of it? Or am I just tiring the crap out of my athlete? Um, which is why intent is so critical and it's what we put as one of our primary principles because if you have the maximal intent, whether it's an isometric movement or whether it's a squatting pattern, you know that the ballistic nature, I guess, the uh, ballistic intent of the movement is still going to be there, even if you're not physically jumping off of the ground. Right, That initial rapid rate of force development out of the hole is going to play a big role in developing that motor pattern. Yeah, I like that, Max. And I that reminds me of uh, like a, a track and field concept. The idea of like if you're going to condition a sprinter, if you want to do uh, more aerobic, you know, just work on their aerobic uh, basic fitness level, to not use running for that, to use you know, circuits, uh, fitness circuits, and medicine balls, and and you know, body weight training rather than than using this the sprint as a conditioning tool. So I, I think that's it. that's really interesting. I mean, is there a I'd never really thought about that outside of like, uh, say, using a squat. So would that mean maybe using like a leg press instead? Like ideas of using simpler stuff and not harming the motor pattern or, or those types of ideas? So I might do something, say something right here that might frustrate people. But I'm a huge Westside fan. I am at heart. I can't deny it. Um, and I think it's because it's very enclosed where their training, their sport is so obviously specific. Right? It's how much can you squat and the concepts of Westside can be applied places, um, maybe not the actual programming they use for their power lifters for your athletes, right? But the concepts can be applied. And what they do a good job of is they don't train that motor pattern, let's say the squat, right, to failure, right? They're doing it very high intent, either dynamically or with maximal effort, right? And then they train the muscles itself, the specific muscles, through a general means. So going back to an athlete, maybe you want to do step ups. Maybe I've seen you, Joel, do the flywheel quad dominant um, uh, kind of quarter squats. Um, maybe you want to do some specific pogo hops to overload the gastric complex. Um, but you don't necessarily want to damage or I want to say damage, but disrupt that motor pattern of if you're using the squat, let's say, as a specific uh, exercise, you don't want to disrupt it by getting so fatigued to the point where it's now perturbating the system. You're learning poor habits and not doing it with maximal intent. Yeah, I, I like. It's really cool to see like the track and powerlifting connection there. Like Wes, you know how they're doing it with that, and how track coaches kind of feel about the same thing with pre preservation of the motor pattern. Uh, I think sometimes I get so wound up in 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 speed, I I sometimes get outside even you know get away from that core in the weight room, and and I think it's uh, or speed in sprinting, express in sprinting, I should say. And uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Uh, Matt, I was wanted to come back around to you too. Uh, so talking about and and uh, so in terms of proportions, uh, and I just thought this was an interesting question to ask you too, uh, with the the French contrast idea, and maybe you have the the sliding scale. You have you know, triphasic for football, where you're doing it like extended, and then you and then you have maybe more of a traditional using it at the end of a the end of the triphasic. Uh, do you kind of find it? Do you uh, typically use, use it as uh, traditional, kind of at the end, uh, as maybe a smaller proportion of the year? How do you? What's your proportions looking like on that? So the French contrast, I'll actually I will implement the entire year, uh, but I, I shouldn't say the entire year. So the the system that we're using, um, like for for football, for example, or lacrosse, it's it's kind of similar with the amount of time they have off. Um, we have fall ball for lacrosse versus spring ball for football. Uh, but over the summer for our lacrosse, so it's our season just ended, like we ended May 29th. So we're only in, I think it's like week, we gave them two weeks off, week 10 of our off season now, I think, or week nine. Uh, but anyways, we'll start off with what we're talking about, some of the more basic strength qualities. Now we're going to go high quality with it, ensuring that our athletes are utilizing their intent, things like that. And And what Max was saying earlier about the, the motor pattern or the intent piece, it, it kind of, it rang a bell with me and it's something that I hadn't really thought about before, but it was almost like the processes that I went through as an athlete, like let's say it was whatever it was early off season, it was three sets of eight on your squat. And, and let's say it was at like 
75% or so where it's like you're, you're working up to almost a maximal set for eight reps and you get through your first four. And this is literally, I mean, I'm, I'm a very process oriented person. So I'm, I'm counting in my head, whatever. And you get through four and I'll think of it as percentages. I'm like, okay, I'm 50% done right now. And then I'm going to have, okay, I've got four more, like just do that again. But it's like, if you're, if you're pushing your athletes to that point, where it's like you're doing those extended repetitions, there's no way I was producing maximal intent for that first four reps or even the last four. It's like I'm just trying to to survive those eight reps basically rather than focus on producing that intent. So I think that like even like for me, it, it goes back to like clustering. Okay, can we do sets of two reps, rest 15 seconds, do two more, and then you can still get your eight reps through that and you're you can coach your athletes to have a much higher intent than if you're just pushing them to that failure so that's kind of i mean that just that rang a bell with me a little bit off topic but as, as far as the french contrast goes yeah when we begin our quote-unquote triphasic so it's the eccentric isometric um reactive power uh power speed we'll utilize it but we'll utilize it in a different fashion than i think what it's been shown so far and and like Cal does a great job with his progressions, but he's a lot of his stuff is for hockey players, right? So like they're not going to have to run. They're not they're not changing direction in the same means that that the players that I'm working with currently are. So we'll start in our French contrast. We'll utilize even isometric. So it's a rapid pull in, stick and hold, making sure that critical angle that we talk about is achieved because that's what it's going to come down to. Is it's especially in the strength phases when we're focusing on it, we're going to be more generalized. But it's just going to be that specific angle, your sticking point. Boom, got it. And then you can have them still create the the reactive portion out of it. And then as you progress, we'll just get more specific with it. So we've done a lot more uh, lateral work with it, lacrosse, huge laterally based sport. Um, and then as we get into our preseason, our quote unquote power speed work, then uh, just based on the loading schemes and, and the velocity of the bar, we will begin to implement more running base and it, it's just run it's like it's a sprint it can be paired with a, a slightly weighted sled pull again we don't want to change that motor pattern of that sprint so if we're changing that then we're going to run into problems and then i personally haven't gotten to the point where i'm a comfortable using an accelerated uh, we don't have like the 1080 sprint or anything so we are just using bands for our accelerated and and i'm not comfortable in a room where it's me one other strength coach and two or three interns running a room of 55 to 60 guys and saying, okay, we've got our six yards of turf, but let's do accelerated band running as our accelerated version of the French contrast. I'm just, I'm just not there. It's just too, it's too scary to have a guy like potentially pop a hamstring. So we'll keep our accelerated jumps at that point, but we can change it. I mean, if we were doing single leg, more strength based work at that angle, now we can do double leg, make it reactive. There's no more pause. And that's kind of our, our general to specific. So we can implement French contrast throughout that entire. I mean, that's a that's a 15 week process of going through that. But we'll start whether like we keep Fridays as more of our lateral or rotational based day. Um, Mondays as more of our sagittal straight ahead day. Uh, and I think something Matt brought up really good. We'll take it back on real quick. Sorry, Joel. Oh, good. Um, is that uh, the motor pattern and keeping it the same. If you read kind of the origins of French contrast, um, Verkashansky talks about it in his uh, special strength coach, special strength manual for coaches. I always get that name wrong. Um, and he talks about how it is challenging the athlete to learn and um, overcome different motor pattern challenges, but within the same motor pattern. So it's actually derived from Nicola, Nicola Bernstein's uh, dynamical systems kind of, theory and little Franz Boschi actually if you read the origins of it and it's going back to basically how um how you learn to move and basically getting new motor engrams into the system and helping the athlete then solve the problem of the primary exercise which is the actual body weight one yeah I, so I, if you have these loads that are crazy that are way one in spectrum way on the other you're really not getting that same motor pattern you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Interesting. Yeah, I, I never, I don't know if I'd heard that link to that concept. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's really, uh, that's really interesting. And I love Bernstein stuff too. It's, uh, it's, uh, I've, I've used that in uh, presentations before. Thoughts. So it's always, uh, it's always good to hear that kind of linked in. 
uh, Matt, I was going to say too, okay, so, and, and Max as well, and maybe this is the last kind of thought on this, uh, the idea of the French contrast throughout the year, potentiation, uh, and maybe this is a little devil's advocate question too, uh, maybe Matt with what you were saying, and, and then, but like the idea of, of greater, um, uh, like, like greater ranges of motion, uh, finding length tension at a, a deeper joint angle, uh, when you're building strength versus moving to specific joint angles later on, what are some of the advantages that you get by doing that versus being specific for a longer period of time? I, I know there's some coaches, like I remember, um, you know, I asked, uh, Bonder Chuck at, at, at Jay DeMeo's seminar, you know, do you, do you ever do deep squats? He's like, Oh, just half, half squats, <laughs> you know, specific, obviously a higher level athletes. Yes. But, uh, maybe could you guys do a little discussion or get a little rationale behind, uh, doing the, the longer ranges of motion earlier and then moving towards the specific. Yeah, how I always think about it, and, and 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 again, it depends entirely on your level of athlete. Like if you're if you're getting an Olympic level sprinter, like you're getting some high level like freak athlete, like nervous system through the roof, then yeah, you're gonna probably need to be a much more specific than the 18 to 19 year old athletes that are coming into me that have a two year training history at their either whatever local gym that they fitness center that they went to or through their high school if they if they're lucky enough to have a strength coach which i know a lot of high schools are now which is great but it, it just the level of athlete i would say we're dealing with is much different and and i think by encouraging full range of motion early on um i think it goes back to that that idea of that sticking point if if you're doing a heavy lift for strength then you're truly only at your maximal intensity for that one angle that you're training so let's say like let's say whatever you have athlete that's a 400 pound squatter which is okay so they're doing their squat and they can do a full range squat versus athlete b who's doing who's a 300 pound squatter but you try and throw 400 pounds on the bar you see it all the time you see the quarter squat because they're only at that maximal intensity to the joint angle that they can handle and as um as you increase in that lowest position so that 400 pound squatter that can get into a full range of motion and back up all of the more specific joint angles that we're going to train later are going to improve in their abilities. So then as you do get more specific, then you can say, okay, this is the, this is the spot where we want to be at. And because we've trained this strength in a, in a lower joint angle before, we're going to be stronger now than we, than we currently, or than we previously were. And, and I think a lot of that too, it goes back to, and tr tracks a little bit different but it's like we're such an open-ended sport that these kids are getting into different joint angles like it's all over the place it's you're constantly reacting to the environment around you so i i feel like i can't get specific enough with their joint angles especially for an entire annual phase where it's going to be beneficial for them in the long run because all of a sudden they get into a position that they haven't seen before because we were only doing like specific squats to their whatever defensive position so they can move out of it or sprinting or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden they get there and they have zero strength below that joint. So I think that's kind of how I've looked at it is to ensure, I mean, first of all, like our jobs is performance enhancement is huge, but we want to ensure that our athletes are capable of safely maneuvering through whatever joint angles they get into. So that's, that's the first aspect. And then from there we can get more specific once that foundation is laid. Yeah, um, Matt, I think that's spot on. Um, but I think I want to add something that's a little theoretical and maybe not a whole bunch based in research. Hopefully, not yet, but maybe one day I'll be right. Um, I think to think of it in terms of a range of motion strength reserve. I think that the body is smart enough to know that it cannot take a heavy load past a certain range that's not capable of. Um, it probably has sensory organs that will inhibit muscle tension to protect itself. So if you think about, like Matt talked about, being able to squat a full depth squat with 300 pounds, right? Let's say you have athlete A who can do full depth 300 and athlete B who can do a quarter depth or half depth 250, right? My guess is that it's not going to be like he gets down to the bottom for athlete B, and then all of a sudden he can still produce like 225. My guess there's safety mechanism in the body that basically just cuts it off. He'll dump it. And my guess that has a lot to do with the body's ability to handle tension and develop strength with full range of motion because if you think about it in terms of critical joint positions, it'd be really bizarre if the body was only good at producing strength at a specific joint. 
right? If yeah. we went down to 90 degrees and that was the point where we can produce maximal strength and that was it, and if we go 91 degrees, we're screwed, mm-hmm. we'd be pretty bad at surviving. So my guess, the body has some level of innate um, you know, sensory organs, so Golgi tendon, muscle spend, whatever it is, to be able to sense tension, um, which then if you have the ability to develop a full range of motion squat, right, it'll allow you then to develop that shorter range of motion squat better because you have more of a strength reserve through that full range of motion. Now, that's not based on any science. That's not written in any literature I've read. It's just basically um, kind of understand how the human body works and basically some theoretical applications that could be totally wrong. And I'll 100% admit to being wrong, but that's just my take on it. <laughs> yeah. I think I, it makes a lot of sense in my head. I, I like that. Yeah, you don't see that. Yeah, like that. I've only had a few like freak cases of like a hyper specialized athlete, like a high jumper who like like who could only do, you know, just like a, you know, a guy is like 6'3 and a stick and, you know, is terrible in the, the deep ranges. But that just what you were saying, I was like, okay, well, when do they really drop off? Because I never really, with those athletes, it was usually like, half squat and an occasionally deep front squat, but I always made him go real light, but it's kind of like, yeah, what is that? What's going to happen in that, that, that different joint angle based off the body's protective mechanisms. And, and is it really a strength, you know, a, a strength issue in terms of the muscles and, and you know, how, how neural is this, how we're talking about it. I, I like that. I'm glad you brought that up, Max. I, uh, I like, um, and, and it's so true though. Like the research is always based off ideas that we have and then things coaches put into practice and things that are later validated and that's where it all starts. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, um, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up. Matt, I had a question. Uh, oh, actually I was just say too, that the whole dynamic systems thing, it makes me think about kind of Matt, what you were saying. Uh, well, two things. One is that, the yeah like team sports and track and field are so different because the the ranges of motion and the joint variability that you're going to find in team sports is so much higher and so you want to build that higher reserve you know no doubt that's probably why you see all you know the half squats and and being more popular in the track and field literature for sure but also made me think a little about the dynamic the dynamical systems and if you want to create a better pattern uh the having a different range of squat to to create a better pattern uh i always felt like it was like the difference between a half squat and a deep squat is pretty significant, though. Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weakness in those re- degrees of motion too, as you kind of get your way towards that that deep end squat. And and um, how do you guys progress? Look at progressing that that squat depth throughout the year, kind of going from. I know Brian Mann wrote that great article on that not too long ago. Uh, you guys look at going from deep. Uh, to half to once you're in the building power do you guys associate deep squats with power uh development how how is that looking um i i think it's that's a tough one i think the (laughs) the the power aspect of it you're still attempting to create a maximal level of power regardless of um unless you've programmed it differently regardless of the joint range of motion or the movement that you're doing so your, your intent is always going to be there. You're always trying to move whatever load it is as fast as possible. And that's what like, what, like what Max said earlier. That's the first piece we put in the book because if your athletes don't have that maximal intent, then you're basically training at a suboptimal level for the entire training session. So I think, I think that's huge. But we'll transfer um, as we go through the uh, like our triphasic. We'll let them do and, – and, and we're pretty – tough on foot position like we don't want our athletes we're 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 kind of talking about this a little bit earlier but through that hip opening like we're trying to make sure our athletes can can function with appropriate hip firing patterns and all that we build that early on and then as we get into our triphasic uh we'll we'll implement a lot of that through the way that we position their feet or or whatever we're looking for in that movement so i think even from like and we're not necessarily going to go to the powerlifting back squat, things like that, where it's super wide position. Like if my athlete can squat X amount and it's greater than that in, in that powerlifting position versus what's going to be more functionally assistive for them in their pattern on the field, I'm going to bring their feet in a little more narrow and say, okay, you can squat a little bit less, but this is going to help you in the long run. And then as we transition into our quote unquote, the power phase where that load's going to decrease, speed's going to increase, uh, we'll slide their feet almost directly under their hips. So we call that like the sport back squat. So if you're looking at, 
um, like where they're producing force from, it's going to be directly under their hip. But then as we do that, they're still going to get to a 90 degree um, like knee joint angle, but that knee is going to be up over the toe. So this is where we get into more uh, specificity in regards to the shin angle that they're utilizing. And then that chest, we're always going to ensure that chest matches that shin angle. So as they get down into that position, if they are too far upright, then you know they're going to be quad dominant, right? Versus if they're letting that chest drop down all the way down to their knees, then you know they're, they're doing basically a, a, a different style of a good morning and they're using all their back. So, so I think like our progression is, is where they're producing the force from those, those vectors. Is it directly up through the hips as we get more quote unquote specific? And then we're looking at that joint angle because we do um, ankle range of motion strengthening um, all of the, the, like the ankle rocker series. We're going to implement that uh, to make sure that our athletes can get in and out and load through that. So when they get on the field, they can utilize that accelerative joint angle with that knee driven over ankle in a good dorsiflex position to, to create that stretch shortening cycle through the entire complex. Cool. Well, yeah, I agree, Matt. I think that uh, I don't have a whole bunch else to say on that topic. <laughs> I think you've covered it pretty well. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that was a that was a good uh, little summary there, and, and uh, yeah, it's kind of transitioning into that sport back squat when you're getting those positions and the the position of the feet and that yeah, the positioning of the feet. I think is something that's so that's so underrated when when we're trying to connect squats to what's happening on the the field. Uh, I wanna I wanna keep pulling through in these questions because I know. Uh, not you know time is somewhat limited today and uh you guys mentioned it already and uh i really uh, something i've been fascinated with really lately and and that's uh, isometrics um the idea of using isometrics not only for training but potentiation and what's and you, you highlighted it already a little bit in hitting those critical joint angles <coughs> angles sorry uh but uh, do uh do isometrics have an advantage or can they have an advantage over traditional up and down lifting for potentiation? So I'm going to answer this question before answering your question. <laughs> I'm going to throw something out there first. You got to understand why we're doing the isometrics, right? You can do the isometric from a functional standpoint or for a structural standpoint, right? Typically the yielding isometrics where we're holding a position with a loaded bar for X amount of time probably is more structural. It's easier to load. It's easier to progress. Um, you can actually measure how much weight the person's holding as opposed to pressing into a pin. Um, so those kind of isometrics can be functional, which can then set the, sorry, structural, which can then set the base for functional movements. So a functional isometric is much more predicated on movement pattern and movement intent as opposed to the structural isometric, which is you're trying to induce specific adaptations to whatever targeted muscle and tissue qualities. Um, I think it's isometrics when you, some of the different adaptations is there's different, um, I think, what's it called? Oh, excuse me, uh, sheath um, thickness and different, um, basically, muscle stiffness and thickness that occur with certain isometrics. So we're doing those structural ones, right? That might be what you're trying to induce. But the functional post-activation potentiation ones are much more neural dominant. We're trying to explosively drive into something with the intent, the ballistic intent to move. Right, even though you're not actually moving anything, right? It's that motor pattern, that motor intent that you're trying to drive, which will then be used later on um, for subsequent ex exercises to help facilitate their um, adaptation. So improving power and speed in your squat. So I wanted to answer that first before we dive into how we can actually use the potentiation qualities of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you did that real quickly. Yeah, especially the structural versus neural. That's I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, I would say even from our end, we, we utilize both, obviously. I mean, we've talked about it. Like for the PAP, I tend to – for the PAP specifically, um, I tend to lean more towards the um, the neural proponents, obviously. Like if we're looking at activation, like potentiation of that. Um, and then from my end too, I, I like the pulls. Um, it's, it's not axial loaded. Um, like there's just – I mean regardless of how well-trained an athlete is – if you're going to do a like a squat into a a pin like that it just like from a coaching standpoint it's just it makes me nervous um so i like the pulling more but yeah like max was saying it, it, like 
even with that, and and depending on this is why, uh, depending on my team's levels, I'll kind of mix it in back and forth throughout the year because if they start to get bored with it, there's no way to measure a max pin pull unless you're putting a force plate under them. Like there's no like you could literally just sit there and barely tap it in and make it look like you're trying, and then I'm. Now I'm just wasting my time. It's kind of like the coach. spin bike like, where you're cheating, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's so I think from, from the potentiation side of things, I, that's why I like to mix it in and out. And then also like setup wise. So like looking at the isometrics where it's it's you are um, it's loaded. It's going to be pull yourself in, stick and hold at whatever joint angle that you want, like depending on your time of year, what your training philosophies are, whatever it is. Uh, from I don't have to switch out weights back and forth if we're going to do a max iso pin pull like it's like my athlete that is now and it changed a little bit but different heights different strengths they can all go at the same rack and roll through it in a matter of I mean five seconds because we're not trying to create fatigue we're just trying to ramp that nervous system up get them ready to go so I think from from a coaching standpoint that's why I've gone more towards the for PAP gone more towards the um the pulling aspect of things and then the into a pin, even though we can't regulate it unless you're, if you're fortunate enough to have a force plates at every rack, then, then that's awesome. Like by all means, let, feel free to let me know at what week kids uh, start to drop off and get bored with it. Cause that's how I'll set up my programming. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's just from my side of things, it's, it's much easier to manage, especially if you're in a, in a large group. Yeah, could you could you just go into that real quick too? How you set that up? I, I know you guys have it listed in your your book uh, with the trap bar deadlift going going into pins. I mean, it's a pretty simple, but uh, just to just to clarify. Yeah. yeah, so we'll just set it up, and and again, this is where you can just run with your joint angle. So you start in a lower position if you're going to work on that quote unquote strength out of out of those low positions, and you can change that as you go. Like for my swimmers, when they go into more of a taper. I'll put them at a higher position. They're they're just gonna they're not gonna get into that super low as they come off the wall position. And even if you look at their starting, um, they're still like in a pre. It's more of a bent over position from their upper body, and their hips are still pre like at a pretty high joint angle. So peaking for them is much different than peaking for a volleyball player. And, and so it's it comes down to understanding what each of your athletes needs to be successful. Uh, but as far as the setup, it's really simple. Like we have the power lift racks and we just take our safety pins and just flip their sides. Um, so they're upside down now. That way our athletes aren't pulling into the, um, the metal piece on the bottom. They're pulling into like the safety plastic. And, and the biggest thing I would say with those is because they, they're only anchored at this side closest to the, the, the interior of the rack. Just make sure that your athletes are on the end as they pull up. Cause if they get too close, you're literally just pulling your pins straight out, and that's that's a problem you don't want to deal with either, because that's a pretty safety issue <laughs> as well. So, but you you can mix up uh, those racks, make things so simple, and, it, and it's overall, regardless of what rack you are, all those safety pins, pretty much all of them, I should say, can be utilized. Like we've done some upper body through the pushing, um, like bench, you can set it at a joint angle that you want. So you've got a kid like for us cross like or like quote unquote cross checking, but it's a double handed push um into another athlete like we can the specific angle that they're going to use like it's the same idea as if you're going to do a two or three block bench press get them really really strong in that position so when they get as they have an athlete they're trying to absorb they can push off of them so so the pap is 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 a huge portion of it but it's also you can start to get really specific with your joint angles where you want your athletes to get strong as you progress through it i i like what you mentioned about the like the bilateral squat pin pin push being a contraindication i feel like yeah just the amount of the amount of force that could go through your spine if you're doing like a quarter or even a half squat is probably pretty substantial uh and and uh yeah it kind of it is it is interesting i guess if i mean people sometimes people don't like the functional training moniker but i mean in reality what training is un, you know you don't know it says i do unfunctional training my 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 program is unfunctional but like it made me think about uh like uh, Alex Natera, the the article he just did, uh, he was doing the maximum isometrics, but it was all single leg, like like single leg in a or uh, and then you have the pulls, so it's kind of like you, it's almost a different end of the spectrum. You either have the pulls, which are much more safer, 
and then if you are going to be maybe specific and have a bar on the back, maybe go single leg. It kind of seems like a, a yeah. kind of a cool paradigm. That, it, that's the post that you just put up, right? I yeah, saw that yeah. the other day. That was I even mentioned that. I was like, well, depending on like the specifics that you want to enter, if you want to do more accelerative training, then yeah, it's going to be more in that low position, really high force. But then, I mean, you're still going to have high force either way. But then that single leg top end position, that final little push, I thought that was a really cool application of the of the max isometric. Yeah, that the 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 spect yeah like the spectrum is is right there. I I like how uh, I like how you had kind of highlighted that and uh, yeah I think that's really cool. I think do you do you um, what about do you guys use the like you know kind of like the hack squat the the split hack squat pull rack pull where you have it like a lunge bar under the legs uh, then pulling up is that something that you would utilize in your potentiation or, or max max output as well. Yeah, we use that one as well. Yeah, just depend like double leg versus single leg. It depends on our day. So if our athletes, let's say, and and as we progress, when when we use it for a speed, so when we're in our speed training phase, and we're gonna do a uh, single leg, whether it's just uh, like some of the lunge OC hops that we do that we're rapidly pulling in and driving back down, or it's the dumbbell drop squat. So you're starting tall, dropping into a lunge position, and then you're immediately like it's that pre-activation creating tension. As soon as you land, you're already in your position loaded, driving back out as rapidly as you can. Those are kind of two different versions. Uh, but we'll utilize, yeah, the the pull from the bottom into the pins out of a split spot. Cool. And then, so as far as potentiation goes, so so I'm priming my athletes for a workout. Uh, and I guess, you know, traditionally, maybe it would be, uh, I mean, there's so many ways to potentiate a workout, but is uh, is usually an isometric leading leading everything off, uh, or or maybe or a heavy lift, or what's the proportions there, and what's some considerations with using using those? So I don't want to speak for Matt, but it's probably easier in a large team setting to do isometrics. Um, again, as you mentioned earlier, not well, I guess if you're pressing. Yeah, if you're in a team setting, you're gonna have to load the bar specific um, loads for athletes at specific heights for athletes. Um, then you have a lot of trust on them to not do anything stupid. Um, <laughs> some guy wants to press, um, pin press 500 pounds. I mean, because you're that, not looking. That's a lot of trust, depending on your team. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a lot of trust involved there, and it's also you you can't be everywhere at the same time. So if they do need for some reason a spotter, and they do need um, some more technical breakdown when they're doing that kind of movement, right? You need to be watching it. Whereas an isometric, it's very controlled, right? They're in that position. They're not going to move out of that position because they can't go anywhere. Um, and it's easier than from a standpoint of total amount of work done, right? You're not going through a full range of motion. There's no concentric, no eccentric movement. So technically, I guess it's less energy being used, um, I guess, depending on the duration of it. But if you keep the durations equivalent, and it wouldn't be as fatiguing as, let's say, uh, eccentric to concentric movement. So hopefully, I did step on your toes there, yeah, Matt. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Absolutely. Yeah, the isometric is just, especially like Max was saying, in a large team setting, like it's it's so much simpler than trying to apply, okay, everyone's going to be at 90% for a cluster of two reps today, just as the PAP before we get into our lift. And it's like, okay. Now everyone on their sheet needs to know what 90% is. So you've got to create that. And then it's trusting that some of the kids know how to read what numbers are on their, on their bar. And then it's, so it turns in and with a group of, I mean, if like our high end is a group of 60 athletes in there at once, then it's, it, it's like, like what Max saying, it's a lot of trust on an athlete that might not be deserved depending on not that, not that they would intentionally do anything wrong, but it's just like, they don't, they might not know. And, and because they've just never learned that, especially if it's a new freshman or whatever it is, it's just, it, it, it's, it's an unnecessary risk that I have not been willing to take. It's the same as the, the accelerated running in French contrast. Like I'm not willing to let a kid using a band, pull another kid, 15 yard, tow a kid down the turf. Cause as soon as you get above that 3% super maximal speed, uh, you're just going to start reaching and, and it's a hamstring waiting to happen. Well, so it's I also, think, it's also auto-regulatory. Right, so you're not worrying about percentages. So if you're going to put 90% something, or even 100%, right, if you're doing like a quarter squat, right, for potentiation, 100% of their full range of motion squat, right, what is 100% for that day? 
Right. And again, it eliminates the need to auto-regulate because if you screw that up and you're putting 450 on a kid who's really 400 for the day, good luck, right? Um, but if now you're it turns into an, an ISO again. <laughs> <laughs> it turns into an ISO. <laughs> it auto-regulates itself, right? And so it also allows for maximal force to be produced on like a dynamic effort where you, I guess, technically can't produce maximal force. Yeah. yeah, I think that auto regulation piece is huge. Like day to day fluctuations, like there are time like when we're off season, by the end of our training phase, I tell my guys, I'm like, I want you guys to feel not great. Like I want you to feel rundown. We're gonna give you a week to download or however long we determine they need to recover. And it's like realizing that and, and that's how we set up our week two more of our quote unquote volume and we'll use time. It's still only ten seconds, but that's our highest volume throughout the week. Um to make it more repeat sprint available later on. But it's if our athletes are already fatigued and, and maybe, and, and this is kind of more of a theoretical thing, like what Max was talking earlier, I kind of take the stance where if my athlete can't produce that high level of neural output, no matter what we do, like as soon as they're sub probably 90% of what they're capable of, I might change the workout for the day and say, and, and maybe it, it can be a thing where it's they're working through neural effort repeatedly under fatigue. But as soon as they're there, you're not going to get that true maximal intent for that athlete. So then you have to start questioning is is that athlete really is it optimal? And and I know the Omega Wave looks at some of this stuff, but is it really optimal to train a power and speed phase at this point? Because that athlete can't neurally provide what's required to make an adaptation. So how are you going to approach that as a coach? And that's, and again, like this is, this is more of my views of things and how we can start to implement all of this technology we have to, to create a more specific program for your individual athlete. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Not to get too far off on a tangent, but I think Matt is hundred percent right with that in regards to um, basically the percentage of decrease in the athlete's nervous system and not overtraining it. Um, what we do as coaches, I mean, there's no lie. We kind of guess, right? There's no way around it. We yeah. don't know what we're doing. We don't, unless you have biochemical markers and you're drawing blood every day, you're taking muscle biopsies, you're lying to me. If you say, you know what you're doing, if you don't know why you prescribe five sets over four sets, we think we know. And so what we do as coaches, we use the macro to try and reflect on the micro which then lets us react again to change the micro in a macro setting. So in terms of Matt talking about, okay, maybe we look at the omega wave to determine whether or not we should train at a high nervous state or not, right? We're essentially using a tool, right? A macro tool to reflect the micro system, which we're kind of guessing because we don't really have 100% know as to whether or not that nervous system really is 100%. Right, and then we use that micro reflection to then affect our macro changes again, if that makes sense. Well, and I think I th- agree completely, and I think it's really interesting because with the technology we have available now, between um, like we talk in the book all the time about jump mats. Like I, it's it's one of the easiest tools you can implement, and it's cheap to get feedback on your athletes. But if you paired that with, let's say, if you have velocity based training available. All of a sudden, you can start to see, and this is how we've started to set up the our set scheme based on how many are at how many sets we allow our athletes to do, and that's kind of how we came to the the four sets that we utilize. And and, and agree, it's it's it changes every day, like based on your athlete's readiness. But if you are just allowing your athletes to go through their circuit, whatever it is, whatever your set is, or that little like super set. And then, so for us, let's say it's a max movement, it's three jumps, and then it's maybe it's an ankle and a hip complex just to mobilize, strengthen, whatever your goal for the day is, and then they come and jump. And once they hit a certain drop-off, then they're done. Well, if you're just doing the drop-off for the jumps, guess what? Your athletes are so competitive that every single rep is just going to be a little bit less than maximal intent because they want to be the guy that's still jumping the highest after their third or fourth set. But if you compare your velocity-based training, like, like UK, okay, we're at this low today, it should be at this speed. And if you're not hitting that, then that's another chance for you to regulate and say, okay, you're done. And that's going to ensure that maximal intent throughout that entire training session. And what we've seen is, and, and our sets are bigger than the majority, I would say, 
as far as we're going through a major, we're going through the whole French contrast, and then maybe two to three other movements to allow recovery, uh, not whole recovery, but at least recovery enough that we can maintain that high intent and not be completing this under fatigue. It's right at about three or four sets. After four sets, they're they're done. But you might find out if you have a smaller block, let's say it's instead of doing French contrast, it's just regular contrast. You might find out you can do five or six reps before your athlete's fatigued. And then, you know, now, like what we referred to at the beginning, that motor pattern is going to be different. Like now we are at that point, like we talked about earlier, where it's okay, I'm just grinding out reps and now I'm changing my intent to match what is required of me. So I think with the technology we have, I, I, I think we, we can start to, I mean, yeah, absolutely. We're still guessing like we, like, it, it, like what Max said, if you're going to sit here and tell me, you know, every adaptation that's going on due to your lift, I'm going to, I'm just going to look at you and say, no, not a chance. Like there's no, there's no way you can't, but through all of these different methods, you can start to get an idea of at least nervous system wise, how your athletes responding at what point they're going to be too fatigued to continue. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think that's a lot of uh, really good information. I I'm trying to bring it back. I'm gonna to try to bring it back to what we had said a little bit. Uh, make some make some thoughts. Sorry, we got on a tangent. That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That, that was it was good. I I uh, I like and I like uh, the idea of like I always thought about this too. When I was like in college, I remember thinking, oh, you know, like coaches who are like really good have all this experience. They must be able to take every little factor in my training and get, build me the quote unquote perfect program. But the the more I the farther I get down this path, the more I realize that good coaches just have good intuition. It happens on the subconscious. Yeah. Like they put it together in their subconscious. That's a better guess than a coach with less experience. Uh, and then, but still all the quantification is still coming, coming along, trucking along. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, uh, I like too that, man, the isometrics too. Um, it just makes so much sense, especially with college freshmen, sophomores, people who don't have these lifting experience, lifting experience with heavy weights. If you're going to get potentiation out of them, such a better option. Uh, I want to dive actually right into because I know you guys don't have too much more time left. So maybe this will be the last question. Uh, but you, you've talked about max and 10 a lot. So I do want to cover that before we get out of here. Um, so two things. So this will be a by a by. Uh, a, a two-headed question uh, for one what's kind of the science and idea behind max intent are you and and how many uh, exercises are you using that for I mean do you use it if you're doing like you know rotator cuff at the end you know obviously you probably not like max intent <laughs> get that sub scap uh, but how 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 many what proportion of the workout is max intent uh, and then uh, going off into the isometrics too, are you guys like having the athletes yell at each other, motivate each other to get that max intent? Is there anything that you're – because obviously force plate would be the perfect world, right? Like that quantitative outcome drives us to, to push harder. Uh, so so science of max intent and then how are you using that with isometrics? And that will be, that'll be, be our show for the day. So for max intent, right, the first question is how can you quantify it? Right. As a coach, we can't just say, you know, move the bar faster because <laughs> what is fast? Right. So I'm going to not dive too far off topic, I promise, Joel, but a little bit about using velocity based training to help regulate that maximal intent. Right. And using it as a checks and balance system. Right. Velocity based training doesn't mean moving something fast. It's more like velocity based analysis. Right. Because mm -hmm. you're using it to checks and balance your percentage of 1RM you applied. Right. And then the idea behind that is twofold. One is if you have the velocity checks and balances, you can make sure your percentage that you gave the athlete isn't something crazy based on their readiness. And number two, right, it allows you to understand what their maximal intent for that day should be. Right. And then working on a maximal intent, getting back to your question, is going to help them develop that motor pattern to move quickly and ballistically. Right. Because we've mentioned earlier, it's that maximal intent through the full range of motion, but it's also that maximal intent through that initial, right, kind of bull action out of the concentric phase transitioning from eccentric isometric to concentric. Um, and the science behind that would be like, it was a bunch, but to not go too far into it, right, you'd have neurological adaptations, right, whether that is something going on in the movement pattern, you're becoming more efficient, whether it's motor unit synchronization, whether it's just overall rhythm of the movement, right, understanding how you load and how you explode out of it. And then from a physiological standpoint, you have certain structural adaptations occurring, right? You might possibly have some enzymatic adaptations occurring with the AT pace. You might have some 
calcium sarcoplasmic adaptations and speed at which it can be, re- sorry, yeah, sarcoplasmic reticulum, how fast it can be released. Um, and then you might have, well, you have other adaptations that we don't know about, right? Whether it's fascial, whether it is something going on with the titan and the tension of the muscle, right? We're kind of guessing what happens, right? We know some of it, but we know the macro outcome is what we care about, right? So if you're moving in that intent, with maximal intent, sorry, that movement with maximal intent, then we know our shotgun is going to cover the spray of all those adaptations, right? Because we can't pinpoint and say, you know, we just want that AT pace adaptation. I don't know, like, well, what the heck that is going to do? But we know that if we have maximal intent, we're at least going to be giving it our best shot to get those adaptations we want for that movement. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree completely with all of that. Like the actual adaptations when we're talking neural, like the recruitment, the rate coding, synchronization, all of that, like what Max was covering. But I think the other one that, that isn't as well covered, and, and when I, even when I did my thesis, it was pretty limited, but is the, the sarcoplasmic reticulum, like the recovery rate uh, of those type 2 muscle fibers and, and the adaptations that can occur there. That's pretty, I would say, understudied. And, and granted, my thesis is now, it seems like forever ago, but it was about two years ago. And I, ha- I mean, I've been kind of looking here and there, but not extensively. So maybe more has come <clears> out. But I think that's a huge aspect of it as well. Um, and and from as far as the maximal intent goes throughout the workout, uh, we're the way I program, and we talk about this a little bit, but is is based on time. So whether it's a five second day, seven second day, ten second day. Um, Obviously, my amount of reps will vary based on the amount of time that I have. So if it's 10-second day, I'm going to get overall fewer reps in my hour and 15 minutes that I have with the team than if I have a five-second day. Um, so, so just keep that in mind. But overall, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing maximal intent throughout the entire lift. Now, my percentages will vary a little bit because obviously, like let's say if it's a 90% day for five seconds, I'm not going to be able to do a 90 second repetition if it's a lower body throughout the entire, let's say if we get 70 to 75 little mini five second quote unquote bursts of activity. So my intensity as far as the loading will start to drop, but I'm still trying to drive that maximal intent throughout that entire duration of the day. Now there are also times in the, and this goes back to what we said earlier, where it's like depending on the motor pattern that you're trying to drive you can also like like you can fit in some more of the um, tissue-based work to create that same um, not same adaptation but to to counterpart that if you have a specific area that you want to work on so i i think yeah it all it all fits together in that yeah like how the oh sorry go ahead max i'll say it's like the structural versus functional page nine of super training has a really nice graph that outlines it, outlines it pretty easily for you and talks about how structural training is really low on neural demand and then functional training is really high on neural demand. And so as you progress through that spectrum, right, you really got to ask, why am I doing this movement? Right? Am I doing it for a structure, right? Where I want these, um, whatever those structural adaptations are, am I doing it for a functional standpoint? And during that functional standpoint, that's where maximal intent really plays a large role because you're developing not just right the muscle itself, but you're also developing how you're using that muscle in what is a specific movement. Yeah, I, I love that. That's uh, that that's I mean that says so much right there. With and actually, shoot, I'm gonna go back to super trainings on my desk at work. I'm gonna go check out page nine on Monday just to kind of recheck all that. That's such a cool idea. I'm like eighty percent sure it's page nine. Okay, it better be. It better be. <laughs> page nine. I won't put a show note if it's not. Uh, hey, well, I know I know I gotta get you guys out of here. I know we're we're running super short on time. So could you give us the thirty sec second uh the, just talk about your book and then um we'll be on our merry way. Yeah, uh, Matt and I actually made this book as a blog post first, and it got out of control, and so we made it a book. Really out of control. (laughs) (laughs) It progressed really far. Um, But it's basically some applicable principles for power development. It's not going to be a cookie-cutter program telling you this is what you have to do, this is what you need to do. It's providing you the tools to help you understand the applied principles of power development, then also how to actually analyze your application of these principles. So we have some really, really rudimentary statistics in there and understanding how to use um, basic correlations in conjunction with other, um, you know, let's say you're doing velocity-based training and RPE and basically helping you get an understanding of how your um, 
powertrain is being used and lets you and analyze how um, its development is going. Cool. What's the name yeah, of the I book think, again, well, too? And where can they find it? Where can people find it? Applied Principles of Optimal Power Development. And it's on strongbyscience.net. All right. Um, I can send you a link to that if you want. Oh, sure. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, sir, for you guys. Yeah. It's also in my link for my Instagram bio thing. All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, well, sounds good. Well, thank you guys so much. Totally appreciate your time. Uh, it's it a great show. So I think everyone learned a little bit more uh, out there. Hopefully learned a little bit more about some of the ideas and some of the science behind power development, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Uh, I think the why, that why will drive us forward. So cool, guys. Have, have a great day. Uh, we'll uh, hopefully talk to you all soon. All right. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, Joel. That concludes another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We appreciate your listenership. It really encourages me to see uh, all the ratings and reviews and, and the emails and messages I get about people who are enjoying this podcast. So if you're one of them, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your listening platform of choice. We'd really appreciate it in your help with... Uh, uh, leaving feedback and helping us get the message out to a greater audience. Also, please don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have amazing tools such as the Freelap Timing System, 1080 Sprint, KBox, and more. Also, with some of these uh, products that are on the international realm like KBox, you're actually going to save on shipping. You're going to pay less for them by going through Simply Faster. Christopher does an amazing job with this site. Uh, it's a great sponsor for us, and I, I would definitely encourage you to check out what they're doing, especially if you're looking for some of these new pieces, modern pieces of training equipment. We'll be back to you guys next week with another great episode. We'll see you then.